Welcome to Chamber Breakers, presented by Verizon Business and Yahoo Finance. I'm Leanna Brindis, a director at Yahoo. And I'm Xavier White, CSR and Innovation Marketing Manager at Verizon Business. During this series, Leanna and I will be inviting thought leaders to break the echo chambers surrounding key societal issues. For the third season, we're unpacking capitalism, whether it's broken and what we can do and go about as businesses to pave a more equitable future for all. We're delighted to welcome Dr. Rupa Dat, Executive Director and Co-Founder of Women in Global Health, Gender Equality in Global Health Advocate. Rupa is also a practicing internal medicine physician, Assistant Professor at the University of Georgetown and a visiting researcher at the University of Miami. In addition, Rupert advises the WHO on matters on gender equity and universal health coverage. She was also recognised in the Gender Equality Top 100, the most influential people in global policy 2019. Hi Rupa, great to have you here. It's great to be here with both of you. Thank you for having me. Well, we're here to, um, as we said, we're unpacking capitalism and, of course, what it means, whether it's broken and, of course, what it means about equality and equity for multiple um, industries and systems around the world. And I suppose one of the most, if not the most important um, area that we want to talk about is healthcare. So before we really do a deep dive into it, um, love to um, know a bit more about what you do with Women in Global Health, what you do there and also what the mission is. Yeah, happy to dive into that. So Women in Global Health is an organization that's been built on a global movement where the largest network of women and allies working to challenge power and privilege for gender equity and health. Um, we were founded in 2015. We've grown to include over 50,000 supporters around the world in 90 countries. We have 25 official chapters. We doubled in the past pandemic year. Um, and we have a strong presence, especially in low and middle income countries. Um, the global team and it's our network of chapters. We drive change by mobilizing a diverse group of emerging women leaders in health, um, by advocating existing global health leaders to commit to transforming their own institutions, and also by holding these leaders accountable. So you recently signed a, um, a memorandum of understanding with the World Health Organization. And I was wondering, could you just tell us a little bit about that and what you hope will come from it? Yes. Yeah, so Women in Global Health has worked collaboratively with the World Health Organization for some years. And in March this year on International Women's Day, we actually formalized our partnership with a Memorandum of Understanding. And this Memorandum of Understanding aims to further the goals and objectives that we share with the World Health Organization. And namely, those are around gender equality as the foundation for global health, but also the achievement of universal coverage by 2030, including having gender responsive approaches to health systems, and finally making sure that gender equity in the health and care workforce um, is critical. We know that 70% of the health and care workers are women, and their interests and welfare are critical to strong health systems. Uh, through this MOU, Women Go Up will support WHO at the global level, but also with our chapters around the world, we hope to engage with WHO at the country level and support in their countries and communities driving the gender transformative agenda. Uh, additionally, as part of this Memorandum of Understanding, we will be collaborating more deeply on a special initiative that we launched called the Gender Equal Health and Care Workforce Initiative. It is a high-profile initiative with the government of France and the World Health Organization. We launched it in February, and it's going to be particularly focused on really advancing the change that we need to see in the health and care workforce, including women in decision-making levels, promoting and investing safe and decent work for women in, um, in the health and care workforce, and also advocating for recognizing 
increasing and ending women's unpaid work and underpaid work that currently happens in the health system. Well, there's so much that I really want to delve into there, especially about the um, unpaid work part, which I'm sure we'll get onto in a moment. But I think especially um, with as you've seen with the pandemic, it's changed all our lives and all our societies around the world um, in a way that we haven't seen before in an unprecedented way. Um, but what it's also done is actually shone a, um, shone a spotlight onto some of those things that you were talking about, that especially from the leadership level. And I know that you've quoted before a study about um, out of 115 COVID task forces, 85% had male leadership. I'd love you to walk us through why that happens, what that inequity creates, and what are the actual practical impl um, implications of this? Yes, Leanna, great question to unpack. And, you know, first I want to ground it on what is the existing realities of women in the health system. And first, you know, women are 70% of the health and care workers, but they only hold 25% of senior decision-making roles. So that's our starting point. But we know that the pandemic widens inequities between societies um, as well as within societies. Uh, women are experts in health systems, but their expertise has often been marginalized even before the pandemic. And the same pattern has been repeated during the pandemic, and that's what this study of 115 COVID-19 task force confirmed. A global health emergency of this scale needs all talent at the tab table, but regrettably, um, that's not the case. The pandemic response, and often what we see in any uh, emergency response or crisis response, is there's a tendency to lean toward more of a masculine type of leadership um, and to sideline the perspectives of women. And as a result, we're not benefiting from the knowledge and professional perspectives of women. Uh, and this has actually resulted in some really deeply mistaken decisions that have been made. Um, and I wish this was the first time uh, these mistakes were happened, but we've seen in previous health emergencies over and over again, when we sideline women's perspectives, especially women that are working at the front line, we continue to have gender blind policies. Um, and I'm confident if women were represented in equal numbers in COVID-19 task forces, they would have driven a different policy response. Uh, an example is uh, about one third of countries reported to the World Health Organization that maternal and reproductive health services were disrupted during the pandemic. Again, one third of countries uh, say said that as part of essential health services, um, there was no opportunity to get appropriate um, access to uh, maternal care. Um, and many women were told to give birth at home, whether you were in Germany or in West Africa and Nigeria, uh, women were hearing the same message that, you know, these services are now been shut down. As a result, some women have died in childbirth because they could not access safe delivery facilities. Um, any midwife could tell you that pregnancy and childbirth does not stop during a pandemic, and these are services that must be considered essential and maintained in emergencies. This is even worse when you know that the same thing has happened in Ebola. It's a lesson that we have failed to learn from, and this is an example of when we have uh, women not represented in equal numbers, we see that there are gender-blind policies um, that are impacting. And uh, I could unpack several more examples, but this one I think is the most profound, um, the idea notion uh, that pregnancies might stop during a pandemic and therefore we shut down those um, services. And um, we really need to, again, make sure we put measures in place so we don't make these same mistakes in the future. 
we talk about those gender blind policies um, and gender blind decision making. And but some of that, and I definitely want um, to just unpack that a little bit more because I know that there's also been that has also resulted in decisions in equipment and PPE that again because it came from really a male dominated leadership decision, the practicalities for women. So for example, I think um, the diapers um, is, the diaper case study is quite a good one that I'd love you to tell the audience about. Yeah, so uh, great question, Liana. You know, we are actually doing our own uh, global survey on personal protective equipment, PPE. Um, we are, it's called uh, Let's Create PPE Fit for Women. Too often health systems are designed by men for men. And in reality, the health systems are made up of majority women. And so we've heard from women, again, all around the world that they've had oversized gowns, gloves not fitting, face masks ill-fitting. And also when health workers have had to do long shifts, especially women being majority of the frontline response in some countries, up to 90% of the response, women's menstrual needs uh, were not factored in. So accessing um, pads, accessing other um, menstrual hygiene uh, products was just impossible because this was not part of the personal protective equipment. And in some countries, um, a, an organization, a UN body called UNFPA, actually sent dignity kits so that health care workers would have everything that's needed for their bodily functions to be able to operate under long shifts. And so um, we know too often there's ill-fitting um, equipment that's provided, but we also know that the equipment does not factor in the bodily um, aspects of the female body. And we need to do that if we are going to have a healthcare workforce that is going to be expected to work long hours and for that health and care workforce to be supported, which is, again, majority women. I think the, the common thread here is that it's, it's a failure for women, whether they're in the healthcare providing situation or their patients, both ways around. It's, it's not a pretty picture that you're painting is something that we definitely need to do something about. You're right. We have to do something about it. And one of the things that we're trying to do at Women in Global Health, but also encourage um, uh, the private sector is really launching innovation challenges that are gender responsive and create opportunities for women to be able to design uh, personal protective equipment, but also really thinking about, you know, what the, what other innovations can be created in the health system so that they meet the needs of women who are, again, uh, majority of the health and care workforce, but also women uh, that are intersecting with the health system. Yeah, no, that's, that sounds really cool. And actually, that was kind of what I wanted to, to ask a bit about. So I know that you talk about gender transformative action. And what do you mean by that? And what would that look like if it was something in the healthcare world to tackle inequality? So you've mentioned the Innovation Challenge. Anything else you could share with us? Yeah. So, you know, first to unpack, what do we mean by gender transformative? You know, those of us that are advocating in the gender space, we have our, our jargon. Um, but I want to break it down by what does it look like to have a workplace um, what is that is gender transformative? So the first thing that we've been campaigning for is having gender parity in global health. And that means that women should be represented equally in decision making at all levels. But more than um, just looking at it from a gender perspective, we are looking at making sure that they're diverse 
diverse leaders of all genders representing their communities and that they come from all parts of the world too. Um, too often uh, we have uh, seen that it's from high income countries that global health decision making is taking place, but we wanna see leaders representing different geographies and especially uh, women from these different geographies, especially from low and middle income countries. We've seen that when you have diverse teams, you're gonna have greater innovation, uh, more sustainable solution, as well as uh, more ethical decision-making. So that's the first part is actually having equal decision-making, but then it's about going beyond um, representation and gender parity and really looking at, are we addressing the root drivers of gender inequities? And this is both for men and women and all genders. Um, and it's not only the right thing to do, but the smart thing to do. So examples um, in the health system look like we make that we make an effort to make sure no one is left behind in their access to health. Um, this includes people from different uh, socioeconomic backgrounds, but also people with disabilities um, and um, different age groups and really, really tailoring to make sure we don't leave anyone behind and we achieve our um, health equity agenda. But also gender transformative action is about the leadership that organizations practice and their leaders and that they're willing to challenge systems of power and privilege and also assess, you know, who has more power, who has more privilege and how do we actually shift power and privilege so that it is more um, equitably distributed and decision-making is one indicator, but also taking a look at who's accessing healthcare and how they're accessing it and what type of burden do they have, both from a financial aspect, but also in, um, in more broadly, uh, you know, achieving their health goals. Well, I think that very top-heavy um, male leadership in healthcare, as you um, described, obviously the, the end, end implications and consequences to that ends up um, manifesting itself in things like like we were talking about a little bit earlier about how women especially in healthcare end up taking a majority of the unpaid labor and work um so there's a few things there that i'd love to talk about a bit more is about how does that show up in the sense of um when we hear these numbers huge huge numbers about how women um usually um burden of the unpaid labor especially in healthcare also at the same time these numbers have been around for a while too and they seem to be growing um so in order to close that gap is that actually being recognized at the top in those leaderships and have there been any ways to close that and again some very real case studies how that seen is that extra working hours is it expectations usually for the lower end of the ladder in healthcare that women dominate to take on more of the unpaid work yeah so leanne i have to say that there is um a growing recognition about the gender inequities in, in health. And in 2019, we uh, launched with the World Health Organization a report that I encourage all of you to check out. It's called Delivered by Women Led by Men, a Gender Equity Analysis of the Global Health and Care Workforce. And that was um, one of the foundational reports has had uh, an incredible amount of uptake by governments around the world and also has informed some of the global agreements that have been uh, agreed upon at the United Nations. And particularly in 2019, the high-level um, meeting on universal health coverage took place and there was a political declaration called uh, uh, the high-level political declaration on universal health coverage where we found for the first time a very gender uh, responsive mainstream document where there was a clear acknowledgement that women are majority of the health and care workforce and um, that shouldn't be a revolutionary idea but it actually is considered quite radical to acknowledge the gender of 
of the workforce. The second thing that this particular political declaration did is it also um, recognized the need to support um, women in the health and care workforce and acknowledge their leadership role. So, you know, in a very big foundational document that head of states, head of governments agreed upon, um, that's a first step. But I still feel like we're not breaking out of the echo chamber. Too often it is um, the the gender advocates or women's uh, movements that are bringing uh, attention to these issues. And we still haven't seen um, the leaders of our health systems or uh, top political leaders within government seeing that the investment in gender is actually not a cost, but truly an investment with greater return. And some of the policies that really could help is, um, first of all, having family-friendly policies. And that includes making sure that men and women in all genders uh, can take paternity leave and also are encouraged to. We've seen that in some organizations you might have paternity leave, but men are not taking it because the gender norms and roles confine them to not being able to exercise this right. Um, the second thing is also just making an effort to bring um, some transparency to wages and creating equal opportunities for advancement so that uh, women are able to uh, go up the career ladder. Um, too often, even in fields where there are majority women picking the field of nursing, where 90% of the field is women, we still see that men, when they enter nursing, have higher wages, are more likely to climb up to senior leadership roles and decision-making. So we need to make sure that we're really designing equal opportunities for advancement for women, and that's going to help us close the gender pay gap. Um, and then finally, also a deeper issue that we don't talk too much about in the health system is the amount of violence that uh, healthcare workers face. And this is regardless of gender, but we know that women face more of it. Um, we we see that um, uh, health providers are facing violence from their patients, from their communities, from their coworkers. And I've seen this firsthand, um, the level of physical abuse um, and verbal abuse, uh, especially our uh, health workers that are at the bedside do. And, you know, right now there is an opportunity to ratify a global convention that just went live. It's the International Labor Organization Convention 190. It's something that governments have to do. And it's a convention which eliminates all forms of discrimination, harassment, and violence for workers, both in the informal and the formal sector. Uh, and so these are some of the issues that we really hope to address in the and the initiative that I mentioned earlier, the Gender Equal Health and Care Workforce Initiative, works on um, these issues and is calling for governments particularly to join with commitments, but we're also accepting other stakeholders to join the initiative with commitments so we can advance um, the gender transformative agenda. That's that's one of those things that's both awful and fantastic. Awful that's happening, fantastic you're doing something about it and that you know, you're know you getting momentum behind it. So, you know, amazing work. Um, now, all of these things you've mentioned, and in some of your answers, you did mention some things that tie to capitalism. Obviously, our series overarching theme is capitalism. But I wanted to just from a sort of capitalistic lens, if you could answer how it plays into the kind of inequalities that you've spoken, whether it's um, around women or even if, if you have an example around the violence you just mentioned. But, you know, both from the side of those that are workers and those that are patients. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. 
Yes, you know, the pandemic has been really tough on everyone. Um, but, you know, from the perspective I'm bringing here as a, as a health worker myself and also the community I advocate a lot for, um, particularly health workers are physically and mentally exhausted. Uh, we currently have a report that uh, we are short 40 million health workers by 2030. These numbers are projected um, to increase given that many health workers all around the world are reporting that they're actually gonna leave the workplace and we cannot afford to lose one single trained health worker. And so this is where you know that intersection with capitalism comes into place. And I wanna make three points around this because it's um, first, you know, we have to really look at health as an investment into well-being, uh, not just at the individual level, but also to having healthy economies. Um, and that's, you know, one of the critical messages of universal health coverage is that it's not a, not a cost, but actually an investment um, into the overall well-being. So I have three points to make on capitalism, really, is that first, the health inequalities uh, can be found both in capitalistic and non-capitalistic systems. Um, the critical point for me is that all countries really implement the universal health coverage uh, as agreed by the 2019 UN high-level meeting on universal health coverage. And that means that we would ensure everyone has equal access to quality health services, uh, which is the foundation not only for health equality, but also political and economic stability. Right now, around 1 billion people every year are uh, pitched into extreme poverty. Uh, again, that's 1 billion people, and that's due to out-of-pocket health expenditures, and it happens regardless of which country you are in. I mean, I am in the United States, and I practice here, and I'm a U.S. citizen. I can tell you it happens here um, at very high numbers, and it is very worrisome. But we also know this disproportionately affects women and also people um, from lower socioeconomic backgrounds and in some countries based on racial groups as well. Uh, the second point I want to make on capitalism is related, really related to universal health coverage. All governments must view health as an investment and not an expenditure um, and not as a private sector business opportunity. And, um, and that's difficult to imagine since the health sector is one of the fastest growing sectors and it is a sector um, that leads to economic growth for many countries. Uh, some of that is related to human resources um, being part of um, uh, the export industry. That means that people are seen and trained in countries as a means to increase um, their economic growth. And other times it is um, yeah, the manufacturing, the research and development part of it, or um, the entire spectrum of just uh, creating uh, health, health systems. And this requires very long-term thinking. Too often our governments are you know, short-minded, they're thinking about elections, uh, but really building health systems that are equitable with universal, universal health coverage, it requires, you know, 50 to 100-year visions, and most of our governments um, are just short-term. And so I think, you know, that's another um, critical component of maybe a criticism of capitalism, but also an opportunity to think about investment in, in long-term. And uh, the third point and the final point is, Whatever the political system, governments must invest also in gender equality as central to strong health systems and social and economic development. Uh, the World Bank estimates that the, we are losing 160 trillion U.S. dollars um, in human capital because of gender inequality. And kind of going back to the point, Liana, you had uh, raised earlier uh, about the unpaid and underpaid work, we currently have estimates that 
women are uh, providing 1.5 trillion uh, U.S. dollars annually in unpaid and underpaid work. And that's equivalent to the GDP of a large country um, around the world. So it's not small numbers. And what we can really do is making sure that these women are brought into the formal sector. And every job that you create in the health sector creates um, two to three other jobs in health-related sectors, such as education and transport. Um, so there really is an opportunity to um, look at, again, gender equality in, in the sector. And we call it the triple gender dividend when you have decent jobs for women in the health sector. And that's economic development, um, gender development, and also achieving the health agenda. Access for all for healthcare, and especially like you're saying, with universal is absolutely key to make a difference. And I definitely want to, um, you know, talk about um, those capitalist systems that we're talking about, um, that regardless of where you are in the world, this inequality still exists. So it can still exist, whether it's capitalist, such as whatever we want to um, put a sticker on it. But it would be good to actually also get your thoughts on about when it comes to the US healthcare system and the UK health system, of course, those are very, very different ways of approaching it. And so, however, even with the UK, where we have universal healthcare in a way, I mean, it's state funded and it's open to all, um, and it has a very different um, system versus the US, where it's obviously a lot more privatized and it's a lot more complex. However, the issues about funding when you have a universal healthcare system um, has risen again and again, especially over the pandemic. Where do you see the blueprint or I suppose the wireframe for the ideal system that also would be well-funded enough to make sure that absolutely everyone, doesn't matter what the socioeconomic background, anything, is able to access healthcare and in the same way as everyone else, but also at the same time having a system that doesn't, um, is so defunded that it becomes an issue. And that's when privatization creeps in. Exactly. So, Leanna, I'd say, first of all, it's not the system we have in the United States. <laughs> so I would, <laughs> I would tell everyone, do not look at us for a model of equity. We're, we're moving in the opposite direction. Um, and, you know, for uh, the studies that we've often looked around the world, you know, NHS in the UK has been often cited as the best example. But what I have heard firsthand from colleagues working there is um, just how overburdened um, the system is, how underfunded it is, um, the lack of investment um, into infrastructure, the lack of investment in really even the health and care workforce. Um, NHS is dependent on uh, migration of health workers. And also it is um, often, you know, cited to being overworking its health workers and uh, leading to uh, increased amount of burnout. So, you know, I think that there is something to say about the model of having a universal health coverage system and making sure it also operates with values of equity and uh, is based on human rights and that we are truly creating health systems uh, and investing in them in the way that they can achieve um, the goal of providing both quality, uh, but affordable care and that the health workers themselves um, are supported. Um, so yeah, I would argue that all countries are affected by health inequalities and healthcare inequality. Um, we know that, you know, if we take a look at, um, you know, countries where there's diverse populations um, based on race, there's racial inequities. Uh, we know there's socioeconomic based inequities as well as caste based in certain parts of the world. And so there's no country that I would say has it right. That is the blueprint we must follow. But there are many that are 
working um, towards getting there. And, and the first foundation is having universal health coverage. And then the second, um, I'd say, is really making sure that there's an intersectionality lens applied in the way that they're designing their health systems and measuring success so that no one is truly left behind. Um, and we know that the drivers of this are, are what we call social determinants of health. They create health inequalities between social groups and in all societies. Uh, so, you know, I would say let's, you know, again, Think about the principles that all health systems should have and work toward them. Uh, there isn't one blueprint for for all countries. I think it does need to be tailored and customized, uh, but back that up with the political leadership that's needed and the investments. So in there, you mentioned a couple of terms, sort of race and racial inequity and in previous answer, you also brought it up. And I wondered if we could just dive into that for a second. So how does someone's race affect their likelihood to be affected by health inequality? Uh, yes, Xavier. So I have been uh, mentioning it throughout because I, again, I think that gender and um, using an intersectionality lens uh, where we do look at uh, different stratifiers such as race and geography, um, as well as caste, socioeconomic status is critical. They're interlinked and um, those identities cannot be separated um, and they impact the experience that um, any person has with a health system. Uh, we all belong to a racial group and according to society, one or more racial groups can be privileged above others, which results in, in poor health outcomes. Examples that I can give is that, you know, from my own uh, personal background of practicing in the United States, um, I've seen Black and Latina women in America have higher rates of maternal mortality on average than white women. Some of the numbers in our urban areas are equivalent to maternal mortality rates in um, sub-Saharan Africa. That is pretty shocking since we have so many resources and um, very uh, developed health services in the United States, but there is barriers based on race. Um, I've also seen that if you take a look at COVID-19 infections, for example, breaking them down by uh, racial group and socioeconomic status, that um, and also immigration status, that those that come from, again, Black, Latina, Indigenous populations here in the United States, uh, people of color, they're more likely to have gotten COVID-19 and have worse outcomes. Uh, we've also seen that health workers uh, that have been, uh, the studies that have looked at health workers in the United States. Again, it's more uh, people of color, uh, migrant workers uh, that are uh, the health workers that have been um, given the role and responsibility to be really at the forefront of providing care. So they have uh, had higher uh, rates of infection and death. And so that's an example of uh, not only is it the experience from a patient perspective, but also from a provider uh, perspective. And uh, racial bias creeps up in many, many different ways. And um, what we're doing here uh, in, in the United States is you know just starting to unpack the ways that we uh, start looking at race from the perspective of uh, patients, but also health systems and providers, and also the science and the research that we do. And uh, that's just a starting point at this point. I mean, some of those areas, especially when we talk about um, the racial inequality when it comes to healthcare, and including from the patient perspective, we know that over, especially the last couple of years with the pandemic, there's been even more of a spotlight, not just about um, certain um, marginalised groups are more likely to have got COVID and especially because of, um, uh, for various reasons, but also at the same time in terms of access to that care and being believed and areas of that and even when it comes to pain management and things like that and especially in the UK there was a big report about it. I just, uh, 
with all that in mind, I would just ask, um, when we talk about corporate social responsibility, diversity, equity, inclusion for corporations, obviously there's been a big focus in making sure there's a DEI team within the people function and um, positions like that, that really enables to put in policies, practices, processes, in order to make the company more diverse um, and inclusive. Do you think there needs to be a focus to really embed those kind of leadership as well into something like healthcare, where it's not as, um, uh, I suppose, uh, doesn't have a legacy of having those big kind of team roles? Yeah. So, um, yeah, and again, I agree with your train of thought on, um, on this, on these issues. And, um, you know, first I'd like to say that we have to start beginning and, and this is something that the health sector is known to do, but we don't do, um, good enough yet is that we need to collect the data, the health data really from an intersectional basis and not really obscure these inequalities based on race, caste, or other social factors. Cause if we don't collect the data, we're operating blind. We've been operating uh, blind in the pandemic on gender, but we know that from the broader stratifiers and very few countries actually collect data based on the stratifiers. So I think the first step for every health system is actually uh, collecting the data analyzing the data, and then really having the teams that are working on it. So having the leadership of diversity, um, equity, inclusion uh, programs, that those are, are critical, but it's the, also the way that they approach it. Um, too often, you know, even, and this is something that I'd say even, you know, the corporate world um, needs to unpack a bit and, you know, go a step further in their journey is, you know, going beyond um, looking at individuals and focusing on fixing individuals, really looking at fixing systems and getting rid of the structural barriers. We often say in Women in Global Health, it's time uh, to fix systems and stop focusing on fixing women because it's not that women are the problem. And um, too often with a lot of these programs, it is about, you know, increasing training, uh, increasing mentorship. And while those are all great investments, we know that the structural barriers, um, so uh, having a mechanism for wage transparency would go much further to address gender pay gap or setting quotas so that every time you're doing recruitment, um, there is active efforts to make sure that um, women have equal opportunity and even maybe being bold and radical enough to say, well, you know, our hospital system has had a male leader for the last, you know, 100, 200 years, and now it's time to actually, you know, only select a woman and men will be, you know, filtered out. And, uh, you know, this is a type of uh, efforts that uh, we need to see, especially in the corporate world too, but it is um, widespread um, in the public system as well. Um, so that's, you know, what I would hope to see is that if these teams are created um, or being, um, you know, used, that they are thinking about more bold and radical thinking uh, to achieve the change. Uh, sort of on that vein, really, and thinking about, you know, Leanna mentioned businesses and, and how perhaps one could look to what businesses are doing and some of the examples you mentioned are things that businesses are doing to diversify boardrooms etc but you know thinking that we're always going to really be in a capitalistic dominant system that some of the side effects of that are inequality that that creates unequal systems whether it's in healthcare or outside of it so given that we're sort of in this this world where that happens what do you think the institutions like businesses could perhaps do to help healthcare, the CSR departments? A lot of the listeners on here will be people that work in business. Um, so if they're listening and they're thinking, as I am, you know, gosh, there's a lot of issues here and there's a lot that we should all be doing to help. Are there some things that you could suggest that we could all be doing to try and make health a bit more equal? Yeah, so for everyone that's listening, uh, 
you have an active role in shaping the health system in, in your own uh, community, in your own country, and um, possibly globally as well. And you know, I encourage all of you first, you know, to see good practices um, for for everyone. Really, is based on having health systems that are based on universal health coverage. So integrating that into wherever you can as part of your investments, your business case, um, what is considered an enabling environment. Um, you know, the corporate world has huge amount of power of saying you know, where they're putting their foreign investments into, uh, what kind of, you know, working culture and environments there. So, you know, really making sure that you're taking the good practice of bringing universal coverage to wherever you're going. Second, making a gender responsive. We've talked a lot about the different barriers that women face, but also the solutions um, and recognizing that um, there's different needs for all genders. And uh, we talked a lot about women and girls, but I also want to say that men benefit from having gender responsive health systems too. Uh, right now, um, harmful masculinities often keep men um, uh, away from health systems. Um, the the macho personality of you know I don't get sick, I'm too strong, I'm not going to have a heart attack, I'm not going to you know uh, I'll just you know get over this uh, cold without getting it checked out. That actually leads to um, higher mortality for men. And we know that you know if we had gender responsive health systems, and again the corporate culture that encourages um, all genders to uh, go for their health and well-being, and that includes their mental health too. These are ways that we are changing the changing the work culture. Um, we also know that um, there's um, other other areas and issues that um, again are deprioritized. Um, so access to maternal maternity and reproductive health. We've heard over and over again of how those services have been shut down um, during uh, the pandemic or when there's shortage of uh, budgetary constraints. Again, these are the services that are first to be cut out. So there's a responsibility to uh, make sure that this is part of the essential um, healthcare packages that you're providing. And this has a cost um, of lives on women. And um, I've talked about um, uh, the, the lack of access to family planning services, but also the unintended pregnancies. And um, as a result, a lot of unsafe abortions have happened, uh, especially for girls and women around the world because of this disruption of services. And then specifically, if we're looking at institutional policies, um, you know, going, going um, a bit more granular, as I talked about more societal-wide approaches, is one, the quotas and targets. Uh, this is great that boards are starting to um, have, have these targets. Um, you know, we've seen studies that have shown that once you have that critical percentage of 30% uh, of women in a team, uh, women are uh, enabled to contribute in a more meaningful way. I'd encourage uh, boards to also um, go uh, beyond gender and look at broader diversity, whether it's racial, geographical, um, uh, socioeconomic, you know, just really having an intergenerational as well, that that's, um, you know, those quotas and targets should be happening at the most senior level, but be also happening um, at all levels of recruitment. Um, the second thing is addressing pay inequality. Um, this is something um, that, you know, there are programs out there that you can enroll in, um, whether it's an EDGE certification or other, um, you know, uh, global certifications that let you know how you're doing with your gender pay gap. Um, the health sector has one of the highest pay gaps. It's um, measured at about 28%, um, whereas other sectors are cl uh, closer to 20%. In the United States, for example, that means that male physicians 
for the exact same specialty make on average $100,000 more than female uh, physicians for the exact specialty. So it shows you that these are not small numbers and there's a lot that can be done. Um, but where you're working in lower middle income countries, many of those health systems are dependent on unpaid and underpaid work. Uh, and there's uh, ways that those um, uh, informal workers can actually become formally part of the health system in countries like Ethiopia and Liberia have done that. Um, a third area, which um, is one that is on top of mind for many, is um, really the violence and sexual harassment that takes place in the workplace. It is very high in the health sector, and I think the corporate world has been reflecting, um, you know, as a result of the uh, uh, Me Too movement, uh, but the work is still not done there, and I think there can be more efforts with the good practices um, that you're you're learning to also cross share and not you know approach it from a sort of legal safeguarding um, you know lens, uh, but really look at you know we need to retain women, and if women are facing sexual harassment and bullying, then they're more likely to leave the workplace, and then you lose the talent and expertise. So it is it is a critical issue. And um, and finally, I'd like to say that, you know, the family-friendly policies, um, paternity leave is um, really critical for men, but we need to create incentives so that men actually exercise the paternity leave, and the work culture actually is enabling um, for, for men to go ahead and take these paternity leaves. And we also know that um, as society around the world are transforming, that it's not, um, you know, couples are changing. Um, and so, you know, it doesn't mean that it's going to be a male and female couple. It could be a female, female, male, male, or other genders um, linking up as couples having kids. So we need to really evaluate policies and change and transform the work culture so that uh, all genders truly can uh, exercise and uh, use the policies that exist. Dr. Dat. That's the most powerful message that we can leave on. So I don't want to take away anything from it, but it's been a fantastic interview. It's been an honor to have you on Chamber Breakers today. Um, but before we sign off, um, it would be great if you could just let the listeners or watchers know that if they want more information on whether it's the initiatives, projects or um, institutions that you're working with that they want to get in touch or more information on where can they go. Great. And I'd like to also just close with just a few key messages, if that's okay, Liana. Absolutely. Uh, we, we, we talked about a lot, a lot of different things. Um, you know, first I want to say we need to change a narrative and all of you that are listening, please bar be part of changing the narratives to start viewing women as leaders. Uh, second, this pandemic um, is further deepening gender inequality. If we're not intentional, we'll have setbacks of the progress that we've made in the past decades. Currently, estimates are it's going to take us at least 100 years to achieve gender equality. Let's work together and accelerate and leapfrog. That's something that I know um, the private sector world is really well known to do. And um, finally, I really invite all of you to join uh, Women in Global Health's efforts, support us, and join the Gender Equal Health and Care Workforce Initiative. Um, uh, we really are encouraging governments to uh, join, but also um, all stakeholders are welcome to show support to these, this initiative. And you can learn more by going to uh, womenngh.org. Uh, we're very active on all the social media platforms, so you can find us um, out there too. Uh, but again, uh, please see this as a, an investment uh, to achieve your own goals. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you so much for coming.
And thank you so much. And for everyone that's been listening and watching, don't forget you can check out Yahoo Finance and Yahoo Finance UK for more articles and information around this subject. And if you love this episode and this series, which of course you will, please give us a like, a follow and a subscribe. Mm-hmm.